Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Enrica News Podcast. Today, we're looking at a fascinating study from Endo 2023 about COVID-19 exposure and weight gain in infants. The title of the study is Accelerated Longitudinal Weight Gain Among Infants with In Utero COVID-19 Exposure. Joining me to talk about it is one of the study authors, Molly O'Keen, a clinical researcher at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thank you for being here today, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So in addition to its unprecedented morbidity and mortality worldwide, the COVID-19 pandemic created new medical mysteries that need to be solved. Your study looks at one of these new mysteries. Please tell us about it. Yeah. So like you said, we all know by now that COVID-19 has caused really extensive morbidity and mortality worldwide since its onset in 2019. And there's a lot of research about what SARS-CoV-2 does to the body of the person who's infected. But we also know that there's this really large and rapidly growing novel population of children with in utero exposure. So their mothers had COVID-19 during pregnancy and there's no vertical transmission. So the infants themselves are not directly infected. But we are looking in this study at the long-term possible health consequences of this exposure because we know that this novel population will reach estimated 10 to hundreds of millions of people worldwide over the next five years. And so it's really important that we research what possible implications there are for this population. So before we get into your study, just a little more background. Why is the intrauterine environment so important to chronic disease risk? Yeah, great question. So in the endocrine community, we often think about the intrauterine environment as being really critical in shaping long-term potential health risk in offspring. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic presents this really important opportunity to study that on mass scale. The paradigm of DOHAD or Developmental Origins of Health and Disease looks at different, quote, accidents of nature or mass events in history where there's a large population with a specific exposure and looking at health consequences later on over the life course in that population of exposed people. In other words, these mass events can help us understand the impacts of maternal inflammation and infection during pregnancy on a large scale. And I think it's important to look at COVID-19 as an opportunity to do so. And so we know that the general theory around the intrauterine environment affecting fetal development is that the fetus becomes adapted to the intrauterine environment. And so if that environment is in some way altered, for example, a historical event that's been studied are famines throughout history, or in our case by COVID-19 and the associated hypoxia, inflammation, or hypercoagulability, for example, that we know is a common consequence of COVID-19. It's important to look at how the fetus might adjust to this altered intrauterine environment and then possibly the mismatch between the intrauterine environment and the environment ex utero after delivery and how this mismatch can kind of cause health consequences later on. Why are longitudinal <laughs> growth patterns among infants important? Longitudinal growth patterns in early infancy are thought of as kind of an early predictor of long-term metabolic health risk. 
So for example, studies have shown that accelerated postnatal growth can be associated with greater long-term risk of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and other metabolic complications. So in our case, although we can't prove with a study just examining longitudinal growth over the first year of life that there will be necessarily long-term risk to this population, I think these observations provide sort of a window into what their disease risk over the life course might look like and give us an idea of how to monitor this population as they age. Well, let's get into it now. Tell us about your study. Yeah, definitely. So to begin to assess growth patterns and possible long-term risk in this novel population, we leveraged the Mass General Brigham Perinatal COVID-19 Biorepository. And the biorepository was established really rapidly during the pandemic to collect samples and information from mothers both with and without COVID-19 during pregnancy. And then their neonates as well, who were all born within the Mass General Brigham hospital system. So we developed our cohort from this biorepository and we identified 149 infants with and 127 infants without in utero COVID-19 exposure. And then we collected information from the child's medical records and the biorepository data to look at different prenatal factors and covariates, as well as collect weight, length, and BMI at birth, and then two, six, and 12 months from the infant's medical records. And then we use these raw values to calculate Z-scores according to the World Health Organization Child Growth Standards at each time point throughout the first year. And then we also calculated adjusted Z-scores to account for prematurity in the population using the child's gestational age. And so given this demonstrated importance that we've already talked about of longitudinal growth during infancy as a predictor of long-term risk, we decided to use change in VMI Z-score from zero to 12 months as our primary endpoint. Now I get to the fun question. What did you find? And I often ask this too of folks who come on the podcast when you talk about the findings, did anything maybe surprise you? Yeah, so we honestly didn't know what we had, what we would find in this population. We had our predictions, but all that had been gathered about this population so far was obstetric outcomes. So things at birth. So we knew that this population was generally being born with a lower birth weight, and we sort of expected to find that in our cohort. And we did. We found that children exposed to COVID-19 in utero were born at a lower weight on average. And then kind of the novel piece of this is that we found that they experienced the this accelerated increase in BMI over the first year of life. And so that's kind of the really important part that we're getting at here. Um, so while the COVID unexposed group stayed at roughly the same percentile lines, if you picture a child's growth chart in the pediatrician's office, they stayed at roughly the same percentile lines over the first year of life for BMI. On the other hand, their exposed counterparts experienced this significant increase in BMI Z-score over the first year of life, averaging about zero 0.5 BMI Z-scores, which we believe to be clinically significant. And so this really indicates the need for further studies, first and foremost, with detailed cardiometabolic assessments, as well as long-term follow-up of these patients. And this knowledge as part of the holistic picture of health when a pediatrician is assessing risk for obesity, diabetes, and other conditions over the life course. So your study does look at the first 12 months of life, but how long do you think the effects could last in this population? 
The first 12 months of life was really the longest amount of time that we could gather a critical mass of data to analyze at the time of data collection when we were doing this analysis. But ideally, we would follow this population long term because we know from other studies that the first year of life and patterns in it indicate possible risk. But like we said, we really want to do long term studies to follow the outcomes of these potential implications long term. So it sounds like there's still a bit to learn, some longer term things you want to look at. This is an entirely new population sort of that we're studying here. What do we still need to learn? I think the simple answer is so much. (laughs) Um, Our study, I think, has been important in helping us gain awareness of the potential metabolic consequences of in utero exposure to maternal COVID-19. But it's really just the start. We think that the next step is to do prospective studies with detailed cardiometabolic assessments, like I said, to further assess risk as this population gets older. So we recently completed the PROSPER study at Mass General Hospital, in which we did this, completing assessments including echocardiograms, body composition measurements, and measuring urine hormones in children between one and two years of age with and without in utero exposure to maternal COVID-19. So we recently wrapped up the study and we're in analysis now and we're really looking forward to sharing our results soon. But nevertheless, the children in the PROSPER study are still really young at a maximum of two years of age. So it'll be really important to conduct further studies as this population ages. Well, we'd love to hear how it progresses. Maybe next time you have your follow-up ready, we can talk about it again. Yeah, I'd love that. (laughs) We are just about out of time. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your work today. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you may also enjoy an episode from the Endocrine Feedback Loop podcast entitled The Glycemic Gap in Hospitalized Patients with COVID. We'll link to it in today's episode description. You do need to be a member of the Endocrine Society to listen to that one. And if you're not a member yet, we'd love for you to join us, whether it's subscriptions to our renowned journals, educational offerings, or discounts to our signature meetings like Endo. There are many benefits that come with membership. You can learn more at endocrine.org membership. Until next time, thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Endocrine Feedback Loop podcast for our 36th episode. For this edition of the podcast, we review a recently published article from the JCENM that utilizes common diabetes metrics to attempt to predict mortality in individuals hospitalized with COVID-19. These results could inform our practice for COVID and beyond as they attempt to better understand and quantify the body's response to critical illness. It is an observational study, so we will do our usual careful consideration of the methodology to try to understand how the authors came up with their conclusions and whether they are well-founded. Before introducing the rest of our team today, I will remind you that I host the Endocrine Feedback Loop podcast and work as a general endocrinologist at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, directing our outpatient endocrinology clinics and serving as an associate director for our fellowship program. Joining me again today as our regular contributor here in our virtual recording studio is Allison Myers. She works at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the Montefiore Medical Center, where she is a general endocrinologist and the associate chair for diversity, equity, and inclusion in their department of medicine. Her research focuses on diabetes, particularly on diabetes technology and disparities in care of individuals with diabetes. Our guest expert today is Cecilia Lo Wong from the University of Colorado, where she works as a diabetologist. Among her many roles there, and importantly for our purposes today, she directs their glucose management team. 
Her research focuses on inpatient diabetes as well as the intersection of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So, as you can easily tell, the perfect pair of endocrinologists joins me today to help unpack this article. Today, we review glycemic gap predicts mortality in a large multi-center cohort hospitalized with COVID-19. The Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism published this report in March 2023. The authors hail from multiple institutions on the east coast of the U.S., with Marie McDonald from the Brigham and Women's Hospital serving as the first author. At this point, I will hand things off to Allison. She will highlight the key points made by those authors in their introduction. Along with that, she and Cecilia will overview important aspects of the background that we need to keep in mind as we read this paper. Allison? Thank you, Chase. Appreciate it. Today's article is near and dear to me as I was involved in the inpatient management of diabetes during the first surge here in New York City. So I'm well aware of how this was a very impactful article and this topic was very important. We actually had done a study too at our institution, uh, Northwell Health, my previous employer, where we looked at multiple hospitals to see how can we predict mortality and poor outcomes in our patients with diabetes? Is it the hemoglobin A1C? Is it the glucose? As we'll talk about later, potentially it's the glycemic gap that we need to be considering. In our study, we had about 3,900 patients that were admitted with diabetes during the first surge. We specifically looked from January 1st until May 1st. And what we looked to see is in all patients who had an E11 diagnosis code, ICD-10, as well as a positive PCR for COVID-19, was there an increased risk of mortality? Was there an increased risk of needing ventilation? Also, what were some of the risk factors that we could use to predict people who have these poor outcomes? We looked specifically at hemoglobin A1C as well as the serum and point-of-care glucose within the first 24 hours to see also if those or other lab measurements such as ESR could be used to predict morbidity and mortality. At that time, most of the studies were just coming out of China, which was a very homogeneous population of 100% Chinese patients. So we wanted to see where some of the effects that we were noticing in that Chinese population also occurring in our patients. And in our study, roughly 60 to 70% of our patients were non-white, majority of which were identified as African-American mixed or other. We also had a pretty good number of people who identified as Hispanic ethnicity. And what we found is that in our patient population, we had a median age of 68. Most of our patients did have private or public insurance, 99% to be exact. And what we found was that older age was predicted as an uh, increased risk for mortality. In the paper that we'll discuss today, there were some differences in their findings. Our older age group tended to have a median age of 72. Our younger group had a median age of 65. We also found that male gender was increased with had increased risk for mortality, which again, we'll talk about in this paper as they found some differences there. And we know that ventilation, anyone who's ventilated, there was also an increased risk of mortality and what we did not find, though, was that there was no actual significant difference in terms of race or ethnicity. So it didn't matter what your race or your ethnic group was. That was not a predictor of mortality, nor was the type of insurance, private versus public, or the 1% that were uninsured. We did find that serum glucose definitely was a great predictor. Most of our patients, interestingly enough, had an A1C of less than 9%. So roughly 70-something percent of our population had an A1C of less than 9 The remaining group was greater than 9%. But if your average glucose was higher, that definitely was a great predictor. So this was seen in some other studies. My colleagues here at Montefiore Einstein also found that serum glucose was a better predictor in terms of mortality. And that's why it makes this paper so interesting because it's this million dollar question. Should we be looking at A1C? Should we be looking at serum or point of care glucose? Or were you looking for predictions of health outcomes in patients with diabetes? 
We know that acute hyperglycemia itself can actually predict outcomes in persons with diabetes because it's associated with increased mortality and morbidity in hospitalized patients. So I'm going to defer to you, Cecilia, to give us a little bit more about that. Thank you, Allison. I think one of the first or earlier studies that showed that acute hyperglycemia with or without diabetes is harmful and leads to poor outcomes in the hospital was published by Dr. Guillermo Umpiras back in 2002, so over 20 years ago. And the really interesting finding from this particular study, which is referenced in the paper, is the markedly increased mortality, not just in patients with diabetes, so it's about twofold increased overall inpatient mortality, but in the newly diagnosed hyperglycemic patients, it was tenfold increased. So it was actually much worse in patients without a known prior diagnosis of diabetes. And so I think the big question was, well, is this just a marker of disease severity or is it something about the diabetes that's a protective factor? What is it? And one of the other more recent papers that was referenced in Marie McDonald's paper was published last year in trauma patients, almost 100,000 trauma patients from 46 trauma centers and looking at acute hyperglycemia in the hospital and clinical outcomes in trauma patients. And one of the most interesting pieces of information from this particular study, I thought, was that there is a separation of patients with diabetes with normoglycemia or hyperglycemia in the hospital. So I actually think that this can help isolate the effects of acute hyperglycemia with or without diabetes. And what was found is that mortality is increased in patients with diabetes, with hyperglycemia. But if you look at patients with diabetes, with glucoses staying below 180 in the hospital, their outcome measures actually were either similar to those without known diabetes, without hyperglycemia, and only slightly worse. So I think that that's really important information and I think should guide our better practice, but we'll see because I'm excited about this discussion because I think we can learn a lot from glycemic gap as well. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.